The Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market clamor to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing truism attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine over the long term. In other words, emotion drives short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations drive returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, the steady upward climb continues in the markets. Will it last? We're also going to talk to Orion Senior Portfolio Manager Horatia Carias regarding some new investment strategies, biotechnology and metals and mining. We will also break down our expectations for the second half of the year. Plus, I turn the tables on Robin and ask her some questions. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, markets have slid in recent days for a few reasons. Uh, Coronavirus cases are ticking upward as countries seek to reopen, and some of the data is showing the economic recovery may take longer than investors initially expected. What are we watching for in the markets at the moment? There is so much we're watching right now, Robin, of course. And, you know, we have to write so much commentary and talk to so many people. And usually every time we have to do so, it's like, gosh, we're going to write about nothing's really changed. But there is so much changing each and every day. In short, um, I guess the big thing is the market is the volatility has been crazy. It's at this point to be the most volatile year ever in the history of the U.S. stock market. I'm sure that will moderate somewhat. We've had so many headlines, like what I just said: the biggest, the shortest, fastest, quickest, whatever. The market is up significantly off the lows, and really, there's still more of a bias towards um, the market moving higher than it is lower right now. And the market is officially still slightly lower on the year, but but again, it's significantly off the highs, and the expectation is that it's probably going to blow through those uh, highs that we've seen earlier this year, and some indices already have. Well, as you say, even with all of this volatility, the upward climb continues, even in the face of just really awful job numbers, Great Depression-like job numbers. How do we explain that? You know, I think it actually is more explainable, or it, it makes more sense than it probably would initially appear. First of all, Remember, we did have earlier this year the most epic loss, the fastest loss. It was the fastest 10% correction, 20% loss, 30% loss, and that was before any of the economic data got bad. Since then, we've had the fastest gain, the fastest recovery ever, or since 1870, depending on the data you're looking at. And it kind of makes sense because it looks like that epic loss is right before the deepest economic contraction we've ever had. It already appears we are officially going to be moving into recovery mode, at least it seems that way. Way, which means it'd be the shortest contraction ever, which would then would make sense that it was the shortest bear market ever and that we're in a new bull market. And also now to think about it, really markets move more on trends, not levels. So it really might take a few years for the, the economy to get back to full recovery. But on balance, the economic data is improving. Uh, the medical data is mixed um, at this point. Uh, I think it's, there's something in there for everybody. Um, but then, then when you think about the Federal Reserve and uh, the fiscal policy and how all those spigots are open, wide open, it actually makes a lot of sense. The market has moved higher. And quite frankly, it probably, if anything, is like, why is the market not higher given all of that? Well, obviously, um, this is not over in terms of coronavirus. Cases are still rising. We still haven't got a, a handle on the full economic impact of the outbreak. So as we look ahead to the second half of the year, what are we expecting to see? Yeah, I think um, obviously there, we're always dealing with uncertainty, and that is definitely the case in terms of what's what's going to happen moving forward. I do think that the, the biggest issue, uh, well... COVID-19 is the biggest issue. Uh, But outside of that, in terms of what's going on, it's political season. And generally speaking, at this stage of the the presidential election cycle, you know, you do get a lot of volatility. I would imagine this summer, uh, given all the things we just talked about, uh, new medical data, uh, there's going to be disappointments. There's probably going to be breakthroughs. Uh, The economic data is going to be the same thing. 
uh, it's going to be a volatile summer. The political season is as important as ever. And But what usually happens, again, in a presidential election cycle is that once there's some certainty on whoever wins, and it, quite frankly, it doesn't really matter which party it is, is the market usually gets comfortable with that and usually does move higher at the end of the year. And I would expect, again, given some of those supportive factors I already mentioned, in addition to kind of getting some certainty uh, post-election that the market will be in a pretty good spot. We're also looking at a lot of data to make our predictions for the rest of the year. Um, Grant Engelbart, Director of Research and Senior Portfolio Manager at CLS Investments, walked through our areas of analysis in his most recent weekly three. Um, Let's break it down. First, valuations. Yep. So I guess the executive summary is that when we look at valuations of stock markets around the world in an absolute sense is that the global markets, when you include everything, are reasonably fairly valued with the U.S. being expensive and the international markets being on sale. Now, it could be said, uh, given the backdrop of low interest rates, that uh, you could actually ratchet that all uh, shift it to you know one step to the left where the U.S. market appears reasonably valued and everything else then is a lot cheaper. So again, absolute valuations in the U.S., you have price earning multiples of like mid-20s. Uh, that's actually definitely above long-term averages. And you have price earning ratios of, let's say, emerging markets, let's say emerging market value stocks, which are the single digits. There's just a huge discrepancy there, the widest ever by some measures. We also look at behavioral data. What are we seeing there? Yeah, when we talk about behavioral uh, data, we look in, we're looking at a couple of things. First of all, there's technical analysis, which is you don't look at fundamentals where it means you're not looking at how the economy uh, grows or you're not looking at how companies are making money or their business models. You're just simply looking at price action. You can also look at investor sentiment, what they're saying and what they're doing with money. And those all can have important clues of what's going on. And I think the biggest thing is the sentiment and the, the wall of worry um, is still in place. And that means that in aggregate, investors are very cautious and very defensive, very scared. Uh, the positioning suggests as such, whether it comes to their equity exposures, when it comes to how much money there is in cash. And um, I just think that that usually when it when sentiment is that negative, which to tell you truth, individual investors even this week had, again, some of the most bearish reads in a long time, even after some new gains, that just suggests we have above average gains moving forward. Now, one caveat to all that, which is really interesting, is that uh, the retail investor, the smaller retail investor, has been buying a lot of the glamour stocks or even some stocks that might be in bankruptcy that have some good brand names. That is definitely a pocket of excessive enthusiasm, which would be suggestive maybe 20 years ago during the dot-com. But really, the the bulk of the data, whether you're looking at sentiment or flows, suggests the wall of worry is in place. And again, all is equal, that would suggest more gains. And how about fundamentals? So fundamentals, again, is how are, how is how are companies making money? And of course, last uh, quarter earnings were negative, as to be really not a surprise. They're going to be negative in the next quarter as well. But I think what's happening, the most important thing about the fundamentals is, in terms of the investor reaction to it, is what is their expectation, and then what are the actual numbers. And one thing that we've seen in recent weeks is that really all the economic data, actually, I'm exaggerating by saying all, most of the economic data has been coming in above expectations. That's just been more fuel for for higher gains. Again, really, that kind of the kind of the backdrop we're looking at is the, the stock market may have a V-shape, which means it had a sharp drop off and then a sharp recovery. The economy is not going to have that. It's just, it doesn't turn on a dime like the stock market can. It's going to be even more U-shapes or more gradual in its recovery or more of a, another common way of I mean, it's like a swoosh. So you might get like this initial bump. Another thing to remember is that when it comes to the economic data is we're going to get a lot of headlines that say the best ever you know, retail growth number like we just had the other day or the best this or the best that, that's just a function of math. We're just coming off low numbers. And so we're going to get a lot of those sort of data points. And we're also going to get a lot of data points like the biggest positive surprise ever, just like we had like the biggest negative surprises. All those are fuel. But remember, it's just because we're coming off low bases. It's just a long way of saying the fundamental, I think we're in recovery mode. We have, knock on wood, hopefully seen the worst. Um, I think when it comes to the COVID-19 data as well, again, it is a mixed bag. I think, um, you know, you can look at that. We're talking about how cases are moving up as the time of this recording and they, they have slightly wiggled up. 
Uh, there are some states that are clearly showing movements higher, and sort of the big three states are showing uh, cases are clearly going down. So kind of when you're using aggregate data, it's almost like real estate. You need to go more local to see what the real story is. Uh, the death rates are definitely dropping. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's not going away, but a couple of things. First of all, as we've talked about, collaboration, global collaboration on finding COVID-19 is unprecedented in terms of how many people are working on it, the resources, the talent, they're all working on it. Uh, that does not mean a vaccine is imminent, but it just means that, um, you know, I guess I like our odds that we'll, we'll get some positive breakthroughs. I mean, there's been positive news on treatments just in recent days. The other thing, which I think is probably the most important in terms of, I guess, just looking at it from, a, from an investor standpoint, is obviously, at least for the time being, um, there is some comfort level in, from investors and, and citizens in terms of uh, be able to physically manage or to or at least emotionally manage the situation for right now. And I think it's sort of that recovery in animal spirits has also been a positive for the markets. Well, we also look at economic data, which, as you've mentioned, is sort of coming in negative. What are we seeing there? Yeah, it's basically I kind of cover that ground in the sense that the, it is negative in the absolute sense. But again, it's about trends, not levels. And these numbers are better than people expected, and it is showing recovery. We have a long ways to go, but what that also suggests is that we could have multiple months, multiple quarters, perhaps multiple years of officially above average growth. You put little quotations or mark that around that above average growth in the years ahead, and that would there's a lot of things that investors can do with that. I mean, obviously that gives a tailwind for the market in general, but it also would suggest even market leadership changes within the stock market, whether it's smaller companies outperform larger companies, which we have been seeing, whether it's value stocks outperforming growth stocks, which has been a little more erratic, uh, but over the last month that has been the case. It also could suggest international outperforming domestic, which we've seen particularly with dollar weakness over the last month too. So um, it, it is interesting to watch in terms of the fundamental data is doing, but again, the, the, the level is definitely higher at this point. So what can advisors and investors do to prepare for the remainder of the year? Well, I think it's it's almost just classic advice at this point is and it's always the classic advice at all times. First of all, uh, investors and advisors should still expect positive long-term returns for the stock market. Probably not as strong as they have been over the last 10 years, which have been very strong, but still they should expect positive returns and definitely returns that should beat the bank. So leaving the money in a savings account, again, like something like 20% of all investors are all went to cash and it's something like one out of three older investors all went to cash completely. You know, the stock market is poised to beat cash over the next five to 10 years. And if, if people are investing for long-term goals, that's how they should remain. However, the price to pay is volatility and volatility has been unprecedented. It's still going to remain very high, even though it might dampen a little bit, it's still going to be very high. So the best thing for advisors and investors to do, as always, is the classic advice, is to remain diversified. Global diversification, valuations matter. If anything, when we see an imbalance in investor portfolios, is sort of that, that tilt towards sort of the glamour stocks, some of the big technology names that have had great runs in recent years. But again, if you read stock market history books, you know, and it's look at the classic connections between valuations and future returns, that's not the part of the market you want to overweight at this point. All right. Well, let's switch gears for a minute. I have a few questions for you and then I know you have some questions for me. Um, So first, you have been the chief investment officer at Orion for a few months now. How do you like it? Well, it's definitely been a lot of fun. So, yeah, we did the one Orion move uh, last fall. So, um, so I now basically as a chief investment officer, and kind of the way to think about a chief investment officer is it's really that title is different at different firms, what it really means. And uh, in the broadest sense, basically, chief investment officer is responsible for the investment philosophy, the process, the people. Uh, the portfolio positioning, the performance, really the buck stops uh, with the CIO and all of those things, but also uh, very involved in partner activities with the clients, whether it's in sales or after sales support. It's obviously doing PR, involved in uh, product decisions and strategy decisions. So I like to kind of describe it, you know, I think a lot of people just think an investment person is really just about uh, day-to-day tactics in the markets, but it's almost more like using the analogy of a college football coach. So it's just not the game day X's and O's, but it's, it, but it's much, much more. So what's kind of really changed is I'm still 
responsible for that. But obviously at Orion, there's just a lot of stuff going on. And our firm is one Orion. We brought really all these different sort of divisions together and uh, and we're working as one integrated unit. So all the leadership is working together on everything. And we're talking, and it's been really cool, a lot of fun. And we have some amazing leadership at Orion as well. There is the Orion technology side, which has investment strategies and personnel, whether it's the direct indexing, which we're going to talk to later about Horatio, which is, which is really powerful. Uh, whether it's just talking about investment platforms or offering different strategies to advisors uh, across the land. And then, then there's the TAMP side, which is what CLS Investments was, the single strategist TAMP, and what FTJ was, a multi-strategist TAMP. We brought that all together. So really, that is not only providing for that back office support, but it's also providing a platform of different strategies so advisors can diversify their portfolios. So, so doing all of that, and it's it's been a lot of fun. Every day is different. Every day is fast paced. Every day is exciting. And every day I'm tired when I go to sleep. Sounds good, I guess. Um, okay. So Orion has grown a lot. Um, CLS Investments has come under its umbrella, as you mentioned. How has our investment philosophy changed? That is always a great question. I've done a lot of due diligence on managers, and that's always a great question, how things have changed. And for CLS Investments, the the, the investment philosophy they have and the way they uh, manage money has not changed. They're basically a global asset allocation firm, uh, use relative valuations heavily in their investment decisions, uh, risk budgeting, so managing to a target risk level. It describes the bulk of their investment strategies, though they do a lot more. It's all the same people that are there that have been there for many years. And, you know, we already mentioned Grant Engelbart, director of research. He is, he is um, very important to to CLS. He really is genuinely very talented in so many ways. Mark Pfeffer is the chief investment officer there, uh, and he is a legit investment professional with decades of experience, worked at Goldman Sachs, has uh, been managing money for many years, truly a money mind. You could say there's always a slight difference in personality types. I mean, so Mark is uh, is a fixed income person, so and he trades billions of dollars all the time. I mean, he does money market, short-term fixed income stuff. So he is in the market. So you could say that he's a little more fine-tuned on terms of the higher frequency data and economic data, uh, as opposed to maybe like me, who's more longer-term valuation guy. So, but basically investment philosophy hasn't changed. As for all of Orion, that philosophy hasn't changed either. And the important thing there is it's really about diversification and providing options to advisors to diversify their their investment portfolios. And at Orion Portfolio Solutions, it isn't just diversifying by um, asset class exposure, which is important, but it's also critical to diversify by investment mandates or investment strategies. And um, it's a very effective way of also blending portfolios. Well, yeah. Uh, So we've also talked a lot about having a diverse set of voices and backgrounds on our investment team. Um, That's particularly the relevant right now with the momentum of the Black Lives Matter movement and companies are everywhere, just moving to put more emphasis on diversifying their team. So I was interested in finding out how um, do you think of diversity on the investment team and how have you been thinking about it recently in light of what's happening? It's a good question. Oh, well, outstanding question. So, well, diversity is obviously very important to the investment process, investment decision-making. And um, it has always been something we've, we've always stressed within our organization. And I can, I can say why is that even though you have an investment philosophy and process that should be disciplined and consistent within it, you need to always be sort of fine tuning it. And one thing that we have always stressed at, um, at CLS and Orion is really, we always call them intellectual collisions or creative tension. So we want people to have different opinions. And so diversity can be measured in a lot of different ways. Uh, well, first of all, on the point about the intellectual collisions is that we actively encourage it. We, we actually give an award every month for the person who's most outside the box from everybody else. So the person who basically has the highest conviction views that disagrees with everybody else. And it's a prize and it's, it's actually the most coveted award on our investment team. Um, and when it comes to the diversity of thought and the personnel, 
uh, it can be measured in so many ways. There's the obvious ways, and um, and then there's just the cognitive ways as well, and the personality ways, which I also think are extremely important. In the investment industry, there are obviously imbalances, and it is uh, obviously by gender, um, by race, uh, but also by personality. There is definitely, um, it's always been an issue that people just are really a, a lot the same. Uh, when it comes to diversity by race, I, I think I actually almost have to give in a plug for another podcast right now. Um, my old deputy uh, chief investment officer, so my former right-hand man, Joe Smith, did a, an interview just a couple weeks ago, which has been really popular in the industry. Uh, I can't remember the show, but it was his name was Phil Bach, B-A-K, and uh, Phil asked him that question as a person of color, what's it like being in this industry? And um, I thought Joe's comments were outstanding. So I would recommend somebody that to hear that podcast and Joe's take on it. Cool. Good stuff. Okay. Well, before I turn it over to you, I know you are a voracious reader. So give us some good recommendations for investors, new or otherwise. So you knew I was going to ask you this question too. So you had to turn on me because we do always ask this question of so many of our guests on the, on the weighing machine as well. So, and I, I actually believe it, I still get this question constantly. So I've been in the industry for 30 years and I beg it to ask this question multiple times each and every month. And my answers haven't changed too much over time. There's, first of all, there's so much good material out there, but in terms of the um, sort of the classic advice, first of all, in terms of it was working in the Boston area for many years, there was one question that was sort of code. If you really, if you really did care about the markets, and that is, you said you read the book called The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham, and you know that was just sort of code. I mean, it's sort of changed because, quite frankly, a lot of twenty-somethings don't read as many books as they used to. I mean, it's interesting. They, um, uh. There's just as strong information as ever, but you know, obviously, it's it's a lot of, of of Twitter and you know blogs and stuff like that, and they're definitely all over that. Uh, beyond that is, I do recommend uh, anything on behavioral finance. There's a lot of great books on that, and probably uh, one author in particular, a financial journalist uh, named Jason Zweig. He does write for. Um, the journal, uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, a lot of his material is really good, and it's just a really good starting point. It's, I think, a good starting point for professional investors and people who are not professional investors. Probably for professional investors, there is this classic book, which now feels a smidge dated in terms of the names. And it's also not really about long-term investing, but it has so many pertinent uh, lessons for investment decision-making. It's called The Market Wizards. Um, by Jack Schwager. That's it, it, actually an older book, but it's it's still a great read. And the other book is, and she just asked me that, and gosh, it's got a generic title. Um, oh my gosh, it's probably one of the most, uh, uh, Triumph of the Optimist is, you know, it's almost just all in the headline, but basically it's a very simple breakdown of looking at all the global markets and just showing like why, as I always talk about, you should have a positive expectation on the markets and uh but also things are volatile and uh it's just it's just a great reference but i've actually recommended if for advisors if you just have one book on your coffee table when people come into your lobby it should be that book all right all right your turn all right now i get to ask you questions this is going to be so much fun because so you've been doing this for so long so you've been doing this podcast and uh obviously we co-wrote a book together and yeah. Um, so I want to ask you some questions on your take on some of this stuff. And we, I don't even know what your answers are. So we may have to edit this all out if they're not. <laughs> but first of all, just to set the stage, tell everybody listening your background first. My background. Well, I, yeah. So I guess the most interesting part is I grew up somewhere else in Johannesburg, South Africa. That's where our listeners, our loyal listeners will remember. Sometimes you hear me recording the podcast from some remote location in the bush um, yeah, we try to go back there every couple of years, spend a few months there if we can. Um, I began my career in public radio journalism, and now I am a writer and an editor. I contract with Orion a couple other places, and then I also have a full-time writing job at the University of Nebraska Foundation, where I do development writing, and I write for their publications. Cool. Well, so you, of course, always sound like you understand everything if better than I do. Um, what have you? What have you learned? What do you think you've learned? If somebody said you've been doing this podcast, what have you learned? 
Oh, nothing, Rusty. I've been paying attention. <laughs> All right, we're editing that one out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I um, I've learned a lot. I mean, I came to this podcast with no financial background, so I've definitely learned a lot. I mean, I literally have learned what a stock and what a bond is. Um, but beyond that, I think. The main lesson I've learned is what we tell our listeners all the time. And that is really the best thing that you can do as an investor is to sort of do nothing, right? Stay in your plan, stick with it for the long haul. We say that a lot. Um, I think without working with you guys for as long as I have, I probably would have at least thought about stopping my monthly 401k contribution several times and try to do something else. My family is super into get rich quick scheme. So I probably would have fallen into one of those at some point, Um, you know? So the fact that the market kind of goes through these cycles, but that the overall trend is upward, I think that's, that's the most important lesson I've learned. Nice. Awesome. So I guess kind of related to that is, I mean, what do you, what do you appreciate? I mean, is that sort of kind of just asking the same thing in a different way or is there, are there things? Well, yeah. I mean, I thought about this and um, I think, it's sort of on the same lines. I appreciate I appreciate now how strong that upward force really is on the markets. Um, you know, with a journalism background, I really resisted for a long time how we kind of we um, we dismiss news headlines and we talk about how investors need to block out the noise because you know what's happening in the moment is not really that impactful on the markets long term. I've resisted that one, um, you know, for the last. I don't know how long it took me to stop resisting it, but I have come to appreciate how true that really is. Um, And the current example or situation being just a huge example of that. I mean, the fact that the markets are still plowing forward while countries are shut down is just amazing to me. Yeah. You know, it's because there's so much good content. Well, there's so much bad content, but there's so much good content out there. And when you come across it and you know it's well-written and well-researched, you almost feel like, I know something. I got to act on it. And a lot of times, of course, it's just, yeah. So what do you not understand or what still still seems crazy to you about the markets Um, or your co-host? Yeah, a lot about my co-hosts, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I was afraid of that. (laughs) Um, so, okay. I thought about this one too, and I don't know if I can explain this properly, but I don't understand, um, the relationship between the market success, right? And this kind of upward trend that we've been talking about and the wealth gap in the U S like income inequality, right? I don't understand how this growth that we see that leads to stock prices going up all the time, but it also leads to wealthy people getting wealthier, poor getting poorer, I mean, I understand the political arguments that, you know, corporations need to do more to share their profits with their workers, but that's something that can be solved by, you know, government intervention. So I guess I don't understand why if it's truly a fee market, it's not working for more people. Oh, that is so juicy. Um, that almost could be a podcast. Let me just see. I got a couple of things. Well, first, my only, well, first of all, what you're saying is true because there's definitely been more of a gap. Um, in recent years, I would say that the stock market, one thing that is really, so the kind of the counter to that is investing once upon a time really was truly only investing in the stock market was really only available to the truly wealthy. And there have been great financial innovations, whether they're mutual funds or now ETFs. And now even some of the fanciest portfolios like the direct indexing, we'll be talking a ratio about, which used to only be available for multi-million dollar investors. Some people have, you know, you don't need as much money for that. And there's no longer commission. So in terms of of it coming down to like available to everybody it's it's almost never been better on that point too i think to be a good investor is and i mean this and this actually has a couple different things is that to be a good investor you really have to take care of your your initial safety net first you know you do you have you have the cash to take care of the leaky roof and stuff like that. And that's the only way you can be a strong investor and really hold out the long term. There's so many people who have money in the markets, you know, short term or playing it, and then they have to scramble. So a couple of things. First of all, you have to have some level of wealth to really be a good investor in the first place. And then a lot. So that probably does take a lot of people right there. And then the second thing is, and the reason why um, you see such uh, erratic performance by some investors is that they have money in the stock market they shouldn't have. Now, 
obviously there are bigger issues that we can go into such as, you know, tax policy, um, you know, uh, CO uh, pay, uh, we could talk about, you know, just some of the incentives uh, that are in the stock market right now and probably, um, you know, policies favoring big business. If you think about big business is really the stock market, you know, small business isn't really captured in stock market returns. And so um, I'll just, I guess I'll leave it at that. Hopefully there was something useful in there. Yeah. We can follow follow up more later. (laughs) Okay. So uh, another question I have for you is like, obviously you're a media person and you have, you know, a degree from journalism in Northwestern, one of the top schools in that. And you obviously are a writer, podcaster, do all this stuff. What do you think of podcasts as a medium? We've been doing it now for years. What do you truly think about it? Um, I think podcasts are great. I mean, obviously, as I said, my background is in radio, so I love the medium. Um, Radio is a very intimate medium. You can kind of, it's like the bridge between um, written and and video. Like it's not, it's not as cumbersome as video. It's not as um, expensive as video. Um, So you can kind of um, do podcasts and do radio journalism really cheaply, which is a way to hear a lot of different voices. It's a way to break down barriers to get a lot of diverse contact content on the air or online or what have you. Um, so yeah, I think it's great. There's a ton out there, so it can be kind of hard to find the really good stuff sometimes, but I'm a fan. What would you change if I dare ask, what would you change about this podcast? <laughs> totally, totally transform it. This is, I hate this podcast. <laughs> no. Okay. That's, that's not in here. Yeah. Um, I would change. So I've really enjoyed our last few podcasts since the coronavirus kind of upended everything. We've been staying really current and really relevant to what people are talking about right now. Um, so I've really enjoyed that with my news background. It makes sense to me. So I would try and do more of that, more of what people are talking about right now. Cool. All right. So I need to ask you a question as, as I ask a lot of the guests in the interview section is because it's something I always struggle with. And, you know, I, I think I get better at it, but it's still it's so overwhelming is the con the, the idea of information. And there's so much of it. And obviously you love information and knowledge and learning. How do you handle information yourself? And do you have any recommendations for people who struggle with it of the just yeah. the deluge of data? Yeah, so I really limit where I get my information. And you know, Rusty, I've actually often thought about something you said, and this was a while ago now, and I'm probably not going to phrase it exactly how you put it, but you said, I think you were actually quoting somebody else, but you said that you um, that you have to sort of treat your mind and your like the space in your mind as kind of something that um, is precious, that you, you you shouldn't let too much other stuff in there. Like you kind of have to be selective about what you allow into your space and what you allow, like what you um, think about, like what, how much real estate you're giving to the things that you're thinking about. And I've thought about that a lot um, and it really hit home to me. So I, um, I really do limit where I get my information. Honestly, I'm like nearly exclusive to the New York times and NPR. Um, I'm skeptical kind of of anything I hear, especially if it sounds like it's proving some argument that, one side or the other is trying to make until I see it in the New York times or I hear about it on NPR. I sort of don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't trust it, you know? And then, yeah. So I, I do limit it quite a bit. Yeah. Cool. I do actually the little NPR news now more uh, podcasts in the morning. It's like only four or five minutes. I still li- listen to it's uh, faster than usual. So by basically the time I make my coffee, I got that in the morning. Hey, book recommendations. So I'll throw that at you. Again, a very common question I ask podcast guests. Well, I mean, any particular books? I mean, nonfiction, I, I mean, dare I say any market or economic or political history or anything that might be relevant or just any book recommendations in general? So currently I'm reading Harry Potter for the second time. <laughs> there you go. All right. <laughs> not, not sure how helpful that is as a recommendation to our listeners, but it is great. I love it. My nieces love it. Um, so my favorite books have absolutely nothing to do with finance or investing. Um, my all-time favorite is The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. It's a great book. It's set in South Africa. Um, story of a English white English boy who grows up sort of be hope for apartheid and he manages to bridge all these cultural racial divides it's a great story you know maybe you and i should our next book we co-write maybe it should be something about harry potter and investing <laughs> i bet yeah, it would sell make that work. oh yeah i definitely would 
Okay, next question I'm going to have, and I asked this of, 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 of almost all of my interview guests. Some of them declined this, but it's the whole idea of a walk-up song. So, you know, like in – uh, again, as I always set it up, like there's in baseball games, right before the baseball player or the batter comes up to the plate, they're playing a certain song every time or, or like in Silicon Valley, I guess now where, you know, they do a pitch, you know, when they come out on stage, they have a, they have a walk-up song. Yeah. And I always say my walk-up song is a song by Radiohead called I Might Be Wrong. I'm going right. to throw it at you. What is your walk-up song? So this is a song that probably nobody has heard of. Maybe we can play it at the end of the podcast, but it's... <laughs> It's called Scatterlings of Africa by Johnny Clegg, who's a South African. He died actually just a couple of years ago, um, South African singer in the 80s and 90s. And it's a song about being uprooted, but always African at heart. So I think that's me. Ah, oh, that's great. And you know what? You're only the fourth guest to use that song as our walk. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I'm not going to ask you any more questions for now, but we, we might do this again later, Robin. Cool. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's, let's turn it now to the other interview that you have. And that was with uh, Horatio Carillas, Senior Portfolio Manager at Orion. What did you guys talk about? Okay, just set the stage for Horatio. So Horatio has been at Orion for less than a year. Uh, yeah, he's an experienced portfolio manager, an impressive resume. Um, he is legitimately wicked smart for the technical terms. He talks about three things. He's uh, Two of them are new strategies at, at Orion. Uh, one is dealing with biotechnology, which he has a background in, uh, which is legit. And uh, we're very excited about this strategy for a combination of reasons. We'll let uh, Horatio talk about that. Also metals and mining. Uh, um, again, there is a subsector of advisors, investors who love that space, but even for investors who are not, we put quotation marks, gold bugs, there are reasons to be considering uh, this strategy right now. So I think these will both be very popular strategies for us. And then he just talks about direct indexing. Again, the next evolution of investing, which is so powerful, and he is an expert on all three of these. So I think it was a, a very powerful and interesting interview. Well, let's move on to our second portion of the podcast. We're mixing up the format here a bit. I'm going to stick around so that we can interview our guest together. Let's bring him in now, Horatio Carillas, Senior Quantitative Portfolio Manager at Orion Portfolio Solutions. Welcome, Horatio. Great to be here. Well, hey, Horatio, before we get started on all the cool stuff you're going to talk about, we do need to talk about your resume. You've done a lot of cool stuff. Tell us a little bit about your background and what you were doing before you came to Orion Portfolio Solutions. Yeah, happy to talk about my experience. So before coming to Orion, I worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors. Uh, and at Dimensional, actually, I wore a couple hats. So I was uh, an emerging markets portfolio manager. Uh, I also worked on a lot of the sort of systematic trades that touched all portfolios across Dimensional. Uh, and I worked on the tax managed portfolios uh, and built out a significant portion of the, the code base that dimensional tax managed portfolios are, are still running on. Uh, before getting into investment management and going to dimensional fund advisors, uh, I went to business school and I was actually a pharmaceutical and biotechnology consultant before going to business school. So I made a, a complete career change from that in order to get into investment management. Uh, but a long time ago, I was specialized in, in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry and actually did some research uh, in, in medicinal chemistry when, when I was back in college. And I guess you went to some schools. I, I, I'm not sure I really heard of these Duke and Dartmouth. They almost sound like schools that Robin would have gone to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I slowly decided to, to, move, to move north. So I, I have my, my master's in, in physics from Duke. Uh, although I'll, I'll say the work I did was sort of an interface between uh, chemistry, physics, and, and biology. So I, I gained a lot of knowledge of sort of molecular biology and biochemistry during that period. Uh, and then worked for as a consultant. And after that, I went up to Dartmouth for, for my MBA. Well-rounded people here at Orion. That's right. All right. Well, let's get into it. Horatio, we are all adjusting to the new normal here. Uh, working from home, trying to be there for advisors and investors who are anxious about the markets, and they may also be dealing with all kinds of things, job losses, uh, health concerns, as well as trying to navigate these volatile markets so we can manage our clients' portfolios and 
keep investors on track, right, to reaching their financial goals, our ultimate goal here at Orion. So first, Horatio, how have you been balancing all of these different responsibilities in your own life and in your role as a portfolio manager? Yeah, so I guess a first thing is I've maintained my workout routine, so that's been very important. Um, but yeah, it's it's been very stressful, right? So as the rest of the economy slowed down and, and really stopped in many cases, uh, equity trading got even busier. You know, we've been busier than we've ever been here at, at Orion. Uh, and so, you know, every single day, uh, there's a, a tremendous volume of client flows and trades that, that had to be executed while at the same time, you know, dealing with uh, a different sort of home routine. Um, I'd say, you know, my family, we've, we've been luckier than most and we're grateful for that. Uh, we have three small children, uh, but only one of them was in school. So our, our, our daughter was in kindergarten. And so only her routine changed. Uh, you know, lucky for us, my, my wife stays at home. So she was able to take over, take over the homeschooling. Uh, one little complication for us was that my daughter was learning German at school and we wanted to continue that. Uh, my wife doesn't speak German, but I speak a little bit. So I was able to step in and, and help my daughter with her German where I could. Uh, and she's also been watching a lot of German Sesame Street. So oh, nice. we've, we've managed. Who, does, who doesn't watch that? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Horatio, I got a couple questions. First of all, so what do you do for your workout routine? So I, I, I have a gym that I set up in um, our, so our garage has an upstairs. So I've got a bench and some weights there, and I have a, a heavy punching bag uh, that I've been using for cardio. Nice. Cool. Well, the next question I have for you, of course, is about some of the exciting things we're doing here at Orion. And again, one of the things that's cool about Orion is we can come up with ideas and kind of get them to market pretty fast. And two of these new strategies are, are really aiming to find opportunities for investors within the current market environment. And the first is biotech, which relates directly to the pandemic as governments around the world are trying to rapidly expand drug trials and scale up potential vaccine production. Can you walk us through this new strategy and the opportunities it presents to investors? Yeah, happy to, to discuss the biotech strategy. So Rusty, as you mentioned, the strategy is focused on COVID-19. Uh, specifically, we invest in 31 companies that are developing either vaccines or treatments to kill the virus or reduce symptoms for patients that have already been exposed to COVID. Uh, now we follow an equal weighted approach. So every security in the portfolio is held at equal weight with quarterly rebalancing. Uh, and we're in fact offering sort of two versions of that strategy. So the first version, this direct index version uh, is exactly as I described. So 31 securities, uh, rebalancing events and some securities might be added or dropped but it's pretty much that same portfolio held uh, for the entire period. The other version is the tax managed version of that strategy that on day one will look substantially identical. Uh, however, as the portfolio evolves, we'll have the opportunity to take a security that may have, that may have an embedded loss in it, sell that, realize the loss and replace it with a different biotech security. So you still maintain that broad biotech industry exposure, but you're able to exploit these opportunities to realize tax alpha as well. Yeah, so let me see if I, my thinking about this is right. So the way I look at it, biotech is is fascinating for all the reasons you said that it has incredible return potential because it's 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 obviously providing something that the world needs right now. But it's also like a lottery ticket, or like you're buying a bunch of lottery tickets. Something's going to hit. But a lot of things are not going to hit, I would imagine. So what you're going to get is if you own a whole portfolio of biotech names that in aggregate, because you're going to have some big winners probably in there, you're going to have an attractive overall return for the portfolio. But because you have so many things that are actually losing, as you said, you have all those opportunities to realize tax alpha. So not only is it attractive from a pre-tax return, but also from an after-tax return. Is my thinking pretty much on track on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So volatile, just volatile portfolios and, and volatile periods in the market are great for generating tax alpha in, uh, in direct index strategies. Right. I had one more question on that too. So biotech, even though it's volatile on a standalone basis, 
it has a remarkably low correlation to the overall market. It's kind of like it's kind of like if you add it to a bunch of other securities. You, at first, you might think it's just going to make my portfolio more volatile, but sometimes when you mix it with other stuff, it actually brings down overall portfolio volatility. Is that your experience with it as well? Yeah, that's exactly correct. If you're looking to diversify your portfolio, that's exactly the type of investment you'd want to add: high long-term expected return and low correlation to the overall market. Um, you know, I know uh, the 2010s are often thought of as being sort of the, the IT decade where tech outperformed, tech returned something like 17% that decade. Biotech did even better, returning about 18.5% over that same period, but doesn't get nearly as much press. So yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Another couple benefits of investing in this strategy. Uh, so there's there's a social good involved, right? If and when one of these companies develops a breakthrough treatment, they're going to save millions of lives. So you know, allocating some portion of your portfolio to something like that allows you to to make the the world a better place. Uh, the an additional benefit, and that's something that you touched on a little bit, Rusty, is that governments have put a lot of effort into trying to get a treatment to market. And the way they're doing that is by subsidizing clinical trials. And there's a private organization as well. And, and together between government and private organizations, they're putting hundreds of millions of dollars into subsidizing clinical trials that are typically the costliest and riskiest portion of getting a drug to market. So you as a shareholder in one of these companies, you now have this backstop to limit your downside but you still have that unlimited upside in the event that the company is successful. Mm. Sign me up. It sounds great. All right. So moving on to the second strategy, which has, I think, some of the same attributes as biotech is the new metals and mining strategy that Orion Portfolio Solutions is coming out with. What opportunities can investors find through this strategy in the current market environment, in your opinion? Yeah, so as you mentioned, metals and mining is similar to biotech in the sense of being a great diversifier, it has a low correlation to the market. Uh, since the coronavirus hit, the the performance of metals and miners has has been has been great, and so it provides uh, you know the opportunity to to diversify uh, your portfolio away from the overall market into something that may not have that such a high correlation. We are planning to have two versions of the strategy. So there's going to be a, a tax managed version that will generally follow a market cap weighted approach while you know at the same time using those opportunities to realize losses. And again, with, with metals and miners being such a volatile sector of the economy, there are a lot of opportunities to realize tax alpha in these types of strategies. But we're also going to offer a low volatility weighted version of the strategy. So, you know, metals and miners do tend to be very, very volatile. And so we're, we're designing the strategy in such a way using quantitative rules to make it as, uh, to decrease that variability as, as much as we can. Great. To me, it seems like this would be a really interesting strategy for those advisors and investors who are concerned about a whole bunch of different things. It could be, you know, exploding federal deficit, potentially weaker U.S. dollar, higher inflation. Just somebody who wants to diversify a portfolio, particularly with interest rates so low. I think people are getting more creative in how they manage overall portfolio volatility. And precious metals is one of those things that can kind of help reduce overall portfolio risk. So another attractive strategy. And again, the opportunities for tax alpha, I would think, would be fairly attractive in a strategy like this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, 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 the reason it has such a such a low correlation to the overall market and it makes a great diversifier is if, if you look at the demand for gold, it, there are some sources of, of that demand that are cyclical, such as demand for jewelry or demand for industrial uses. uses. Uh, and then there's some source of demand that is counter-cyclical. Uh, specifically, it's the use of gold and other precious metals as a safe haven asset and as an investment during times like this. So those two effects sort of counter each other and you end up getting that, that relatively low correlation. All right, well, there is one thing I wanna talk about too, and that is direct indexing. So we've discussed direct indexing a few times here on The Weighing Machine. And it's really a useful tool for both advisors and investors. It, it offers more transparency, more access, better tax management, 
Horatio, why is direct indexing particularly useful for investors and advisors now in this current market environment? Well, you know, it's really during these volatile market environments where direct indexing is able to add the most tax alpha, right? I mentioned before how busy we've been uh, during this this recent crisis, all that volatility, you know, have been going in every single day, and we've had opportunities to generate tax alpha. And, and now contrast that with mutual funds, uh, which are most tax inefficient during these volatile periods. And I know a lot of investors have have their money in mutual funds and they certainly have their uses. I myself was a mutual fund portfolio manager at one point, but I can tell you that it's during these volatile periods where that tax inefficiency really comes into play. Because what happens during volatile periods is that investors panic and they redeem their shares. And that forces the portfolio manager to go into the market to sell shares that maybe are down 10% this month, but are up 50% since the fund first bought them. And so what you end up doing is at the end of the year, you distribute those gains to the investors remaining in the fund. And this is even worse during down years. You can have years where a mutual fund has underperformed and yet still forces the investors, the shareholders who remain in the fund to pay capital gains tax on law on, on gains that were realized due to other investors panic selling. That's not something that you're going to get with a direct index portfolio. Uh, and for, for a taxable investor, uh, if they have access to direct indexing, I, I really can't think of a good argument to choose the mutual fund over a direct indexing portfolio. I had a couple of quick thoughts here. So first of all, what you're saying about direct indexing versus mutual funds, that's a slam dunk. But you know what? Direct indexing is still even more tax efficient than ETFs. And ETFs, of course, are more tax efficient than mutual funds, you know, but direct indexing is even better than ETFs. And I think that's an important point. Now, just imagine, and it's probably not that crazy to imagine at this point, but let's say the market goes to new highs this year new all-time highs. Let's say we end the year with a big positive gain. It is possible, you know, so if that happens, there's going to be a lot of strategies that didn't obviously realize any tax alpha. So the direct indexing approach was able to realize all of that when the market was down. It was able to do it quickly and efficiently. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great overall solution. Uh, and I think clients clients in these funds are benefiting from this. This is something that I would, you know, I would put my parents in. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's edition of The Weighing Machine. Hurry, Horatio, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Rusty. So, Rusty, take us out with your final thoughts. Well, I'd like to say thank you to Horatio and for everybody listening. Stay balanced, stay the course, and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine, and thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.